to be able to worship our living triune God to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. I'm going to be reading the whole chapter. As you can see in your bulletin, this sermon is titled, Why We Don't Lose Heart. Why We Don't Lose Heart. 2 Corinthians 4. This is the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer now and ask him for help. So, Heavenly Father, we have had the great privilege of singing praises to you, Father. We have examined our hearts. We've confessed our sins We've received an assurance of pardon, and now, Father, as we uh, consider this word of yours, I pray, Father, that you give us attentive hearts. Give us hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit to behold wondrous things from your word. And yet, Father, before I begin to preach, I do just want to uh, pray for certain matters, Father. We think of Young's Farm VBS, which will be coming up this week, uh, Monday to Thursday. Father, help us to be praying for this ministry, Father. We thank you for the ministry, the long-standing ministry of Calvin and Rita Heinrichs in our midst at this camp, Lord. We know it is a, 
It is a, a joyful time and yet a tiring time. And Father, a hot week is coming up, so we just pray that you would sustain them, sustain all the volunteers, uh, help the leaders and the teachers to uh, lift Christ up to the children. And Father, we pray that we would see uh, lives uh, saved, uh, even this week at Young's Farm VBS. Father, we think of our nation. We are grieved to hear of the separation of our uh, Prime Minister and his wife, Father. We uh, many of us very much struggle with this Prime Minister being in power, Father, and yet we do not want to rejoice over, um, over uh, trial like this. Yet, Father, we do recognize that they are reaping, in a sense, what they have sown. Marriage in this country is not held up. It is not esteemed. As, as a beautiful union between a man and a woman that you have ordained. So, Father, we just pray for the Trudeau family uh, in their grief, in their sorrow. Father, we pray that there would be repentance. We pray that there would be, there, they would be grieved over their sin and that both of them would turn to Jesus Christ in faith and that they could even be reconciled. Father, we just consider even in our own midst, we are just uh, so excited about different marriages coming up, Lord. Even next Saturday, we think of Matthias and Tamara and Gavin and, and Lauren. Father, would you just bless and keep these dear couples, even as they lead uh, this week leads up to their marriages. Father, keep them from sin and temptation this week. Help them to look forward to the life that you have ordained for uh, these couples together. And may their, their, may their marriages be a picture of the gospel to the watching world. So, Father, even as our prime minister is, is getting a divorce, Father, we praise you for marriages that are taking place uh, in our midst. So, Father, attend us now. Father, I, I ask for help even to preach your word. Father, I just pray that I would be minimized and that Christ would be exalted. And Father, help us to see uh, from your very word how we are not to lose heart. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I can remember, just thinking back, it was about 25 or 30 years ago, so this is back when television in Canada was peasant vision. I lived in the country, so you had five channels and you had to walk up to the TV and turn the dial, right? This is back when CBC was tolerable. And it, it, the, you had the old rabbit ears on the TV. I remember watching clips, uh, it was the Summer Olympics, 25 or 30 years ago, I can't remember which one. I was watching clips of this speed walking race I'm not the biggest fan of speed walking, but you know how it is, right? They show clips and they, they sort of pan back and forth between different events. But I remember watching this race and this one, uh, this one speed walker, he was establishing a very good lead for himself. And as he approached the stadium, it started to dawn on him that the gold medal was his. He turned around and he could see no one's back for whatever, half a mile. And the, the gold medal is his. And so as he approached the stadium, you know how it is, they come down in the stadium and you, that's where you started and that's where you end, right? You come back down, you cross the finish line. Well, in his excitement, 
in his euphoria and expectation of this gold medal. Sadly, a judge jumps out in front of him and he flashes the card in front of this racer. Well, this racer instantly went from excitement and euphoria and expectation to, to a pile of anguish and grief and tears on the side of the road. In his excitement, both of his feet had left the ground. And of course, in speed walking, that's, that's illegal. You get, you're out. You are out. So after all of the lead up to this race, just think about an Olympic athlete, all of the training, all of the qualifiers that you have to get through, after establishing the lead in this race, the gold medal was his, and it's gone. It's gone. And what happened to him is he completely lost heart. He completely lost heart. Well, can I ask you then, in light of that, have you been losing heart in life? Have you experienced deep loss or disappointment that is causing you to lose heart? Maybe not, but maybe it's just the daily grind, the daily sort of monotonous grind of life that just seems too much sometimes. It almost seems overwhelming. And even because of that, you can lose heart. Perhaps you've worked so hard and so long for something, and yet it hasn't gone the way that you have planned. The expected outcome has not taken place, and so you lose heart. Well, as, as you guys know, the title of today's sermon is Why We Don't Lose Heart. Why We Don't Lose Heart. As we look at 2 Corinthians 4 this morning, we're going to see why the Apostle Paul and his ministry partners did not lose heart, even in the face of great and significant trials. And I trust by God's grace as we look at this passage together that we will be strengthened. We will be strengthened as a church, we'll be mutually strengthened and encouraged to not lose heart if you're a Christian here today. Now it may not be immediately obvious why I think this, this chapter here is, is the central theme I'm arguing is about not losing heart. So I, I'm just going to uh, go through a few verses here to point this out. Let's look at, um, let me see here. Well, let's begin with, with, with chap- chapter 4, verse 1. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So there it is. Paul, Paul is going to make an argument for why he does not lose heart. So this begs the question. We're sort of jumping straight into an argument here. We're starting with a therefore. What is this ministry that he's talking about? Well, look back at chapter 3. Chapter 3, 6 to 9. So Paul is speaking of God who has made him and his ministry partners. He says, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. That's the ministry in view. Not of the letter, of the spi- not of the letter but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now notice this contrast. 
Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? If, it, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So we can see here what Paul is doing is establishing the difference between the Old and New Covenant. He's making an, an argument for the superiority of the New Covenant over the Old. And he's saying that since we have this ministry, the, mystery, the ministry of the New Covenant, we do not lose heart. Now this begs the question, what is one of the key characteristics of the New Covenant then? Well, we saw it there in verse 6. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The ministry of Moses, the Ten Commandments, the whole Old, Co- Old Covenant, it brought death. It condemned. The ministry of the Spirit brings life. But there's more to it than that. Verse 18 in chapter 3 tells us. This is the defining characteristic of the New Covenant. At least one of the chief ones. Chapter 3, verse 18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So beholding the glory of the Lord, just think about this. If you're a Christian here this morning, how is it that you are being changed? How is it that you're being sanctified? How is it that you're being made to to be more like Christ? It is because God has opened your eyes to behold his glory and you are being changed. Now in light of that then, now we can go back and look at uh, chapter 4 verse 1. Paul says, therefore having this ministry, that is the ministry of the new covenant, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now just a lightning quick survey through chapter chapter 4 and then we're going to come back around. Because I want to show the argument at the end here. Paul goes on to explain that the glory of God that we behold as believers is found specifically in the face of Jesus Christ, verses 1 to 6. Verses 7 to 15, he explains how and why this treasure of the gospel is in jars of clay, that is, weak, finite human bodies. And then chapter 6, sorry, verse 16, look at verse 16 now. He brings it all back around. He says, so... We do not lose heart. So that's why I'm suggesting that this chapter is one extended argument about why Paul does not lose heart in ministry. That statement is bookended. It's bookending the chapter. It's bookending the chapter. But let's just think about this for a moment. Just consider the Apostle Paul, if, if you're familiar with him. If ever there was a man who should have lost heart, it was the Apostle Paul. Just think about it. If ever there was a man who had reason to lose heart, it was Paul. Just consider this from 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four. 24. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. 
Evidently, Paul did not get the memo about safety first. OH&S would not like that. Just think about all the danger. He goes on, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's the Apostle Paul's experience. Just think about what are called the Apostle Paul's prison letters. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Titus were all written from prison. Second Timothy likely was too, perhaps some type of house arrest uh, in Rome. So Paul was well acquainted with being behind bars for the gospel. Just look at verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8. I want to read this without the negations. So that's without the but not statements. Chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. If ever there was a man who had reason to lose heart, it was the Apostle Paul. But he didn't. He didn't lose heart. The Apostle Paul was like the Energizer Bunny, if you remember that. Some of the parents here are going to have to explain to the younger kids what that is, because you don't see those commercials anymore, probably. It just kept going and going and going, right? Or he was like one of those bottom-heavy toys. You know those bottom-heavy children's toys? They're shaped like a, like a big uh, raindrop, and you hit it over, and it just keeps on bouncing back up, right? Because it's bottom heavy. That's what the Apostle Paul was like. He just kept going. But the million-dollar question in all of this is this. Why did he not lose heart? Why did Paul not lose heart? Well, this brings me to my first point. And don't worry, we're not, it's not going to take forever here. It just required a long introduction. My first point is God's surpassing power unveiled, verses 1 to 6. We've seen that the defining characteristic of the new covenant is beholding God's glory and being transformed by a vision of that glory. But I just want to make a quick connection here. We've seen it already. Verse 6, what exactly is that glory? It's important to see this. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ, specifically. So, whereas in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the, myster- the, the glory of God was something of a mystery. It was, it was veiled. It was in the Holy of Holies. You could not approach God's glory. Only the high priest could go in there. We heard from... from uh, Pastor Jared's excellent sermon last Sunday, um, the Order of Melchizedek, this high priestly role of the high priest. You could not witness God's glory without being killed because of your sin. Now, God's glory has been made accessible to us. The veil has been torn by the broken body of Jesus Christ. Now what this means is we can, we can see with greater clarity what God is like. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. 
Look at Jesus. God's glory can be seen in flesh and blood. And God's glory is revealed to us in his very words as we behold Christ in his word. So, so, but there's more to it than, than that. And, and again, I'm trying to answer the question, why did Paul not lose heart? There's another point here that's important. Paul was the passive recipient of God's creative saving power. Let me say it again. Paul was the passive recipient of God's creative saving power. What does that mean? Well, I was thinking about this the other day. Just consider all the world religions. What are the world religions characterized by? It's, it's you, as the individual, looking for light. You're looking for light. You're on the hunt. You're on the search. And it's all on you. I mean, maybe, maybe you're even encouraged to look for light within. But any way you look at it, you're looking for light, right? That's what characterizes the world religions. Is that what biblical Christianity is? It's not. It's not. The way that, the, the way, the, the, here, here's a way to consider the way that religion is often understood. It's as if you're in a cave. I don't know if anyone here has been caving. You're a mile deep into a cave. You turn your headlamp out, right? And what happens? It is pitch black, pitch black. You, there's no light at all. And, and, and the way that world religions are characterized is, is as if you, so there's, there could be a recognition that you're lost, but it's all on you. You're groping around in the dark looking for some type of light, right? And it's on you. It's on your shoulders. You better find that light. Well, what do we see here? This is biblical Christianity. You were indeed lost in deep darkness, but it was God who looked upon you in your darkness, and he said, let there be light. And there was light. He also said, let there be life. And there was life. And Paul had experienced this. This was the same creative power that we see in verse 6 that God used, his powerful words, to create the heavens and the earth. Paul had experienced this. He was the passive recipient of God's creative saving power. It's not a work that he initiated. It's not a work that he sustained. Salvation is of the Lord. And to be more specific, it was God, the Holy Spirit, who did this. The Spirit gives life. 3 verse 6. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 3.18. And so it was for you if you're a Christian here today. This is what happened in your life. You were in darkness, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. So Paul does not lose heart in ministry because he knows that God is mighty to save. God is completely free to save. God is unhindered in his ability to save. He's not frustrated in his ability to save. He's not like the guy that you see at the traffic light holding up the cardboard sign, hoping desperately that someone will pay attention to him. That's not our God. What does the psalmist say? Our God is in the heavens. 
He does all that he pleases. Psalm 115.3. So just as God spoke freely uh, his creation into existence by his powerful words, he does the same in the lives of lost sinners. And so because of this, Paul does not lose heart. But notice what it does now to the integrity of Paul's ministry. We're just going to go through verses 1 to 6 fairly briefly now. Look at, what, look at what this reality that I've just described does to the integrity of Paul's ministry. 4 verses 1 and 2, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul knew that it was the open statement of the truth that causes people to be saved. It's the faithful proclamation of the word of God that the Holy Spirit uses to speak light into darkness. But more than that, Paul knew that he proclaimed God's word in the sight of God. There's that statement there at the end of verse 2. In the sight of God. Look at 2.17, very similar statement. 2 Corinthians 2.17. Paul says, for we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, and notice this, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So how could Paul possibly mess around with God's word when he was proclaiming God's word in the sight of God? I, I just pray that pastors would be gripped with this reality in our day. You are preaching in the sight of God. How much peddling of God's word happens in modern evangelicalism in our day? How much tampering of God's word? This is disgraceful and underhanded. Those are Paul's words, not mine. But I agree. So just to give a little bit of historical context, one of the things the Apostle Paul was up against here is the so-called super-apostles of 2 Corinthians 11. So evidently these men were gifted speakers, but they were tamperers of God's word. They manipulated God's word. They even peddled God's word, for money that is. So they were cunning and crafty in their manipulation of God's word. Does it sound familiar like so many false teachers in our day? They had their own agenda, and tragically, their ministries kept people in the dark because these so-called super-apostles were in the dark themselves. And Paul understood this. Look at verses 3 and 4 now. And even if our gospel is veiled, it it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God, small g, of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So in order for Paul not to lose heart, he also had to understand the spiritual battle that he found himself in. The small g God of this world is keeping people blinded to the glory of the gospel, and he had to understand that. He had to understand that. How does Satan do this? This is referring to Satan. How does Satan do this? It's actually quite simple. 
He appeals to the proud, fallen thinking of the human mind. That's what he does. Paul establishes this back in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians um, 21. He says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. That is those who are in the dark. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So listen, a crucified Savior is an oxymoron. A crucified Savior is an oxymoron. To the fallen mind, we, we can forget that sometimes because we often just speak Christianese. How could Jesus be the Savior of the world if he couldn't even keep himself alive? But when God, by his sovereign grace, removes the veil and says, let there be light, sinners see the power of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for, for them, and they believe. Therefore, Paul understands what he's been commissioned for. He hasn't been commissioned to pander to the petty tastes of the Corinthians and their desire for a skilled rhetorician. That's not what he's been commissioned for. He preaches Christ crucified. So in light of that, look at verse 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. <laughs> what, 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 what you can read in between the lines there. The super apostles preach themselves. How many pastors in our day talk about themselves over and over and over again, right? It's not, I mean, share a story about your family. That's great. I do that as well. But when the whole sermon is about the preacher, you've missed the boat. Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then verse 6, we've seen that. So Paul does not lose heart in ministry because in the gospel, God's surpassing power is unveiled. That's the first point. But the second point is this, and this is, this is the part of the sermon now that rubs us the wrong way against our flesh. God's surpassing power displayed through weakness. God's surpassing power displayed through weakness, verses 7 to 15. So the, the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews, sorry, to Jews, folly to Gentiles, because a crucified Savior does not make sense to the fallen, proud human mind. But notice this, the crucified life does not stop with Christ. The crucified life does not stop with Christ. His followers' lives are characterized by the same dynamic. If Jesus was viewed as too weak to be the Savior of the world, the Apostle Paul was viewed as too weak to be truly an Apostle of Christ. Again, this is something that it becomes implicit as you read through 2 Corinthians, particularly chapter 11, speaking of the false apostles. What the false apostles were essentially charging Paul with was, how could you possibly be an Apostle of Christ? You're too weak. You suffer too much. 
Look at us. Look at how impressive we are. We're the apostles. Paul suffers too much to truly be an apostle of Christ. Well, what we see here in verses 7 to 15 is that our weakness is actually part of God's design. Look at verse 7. So there's a big but here. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, that's the treasure of the gospel, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So notice that, that verse, th- that phrase there, surpassing power, the surpassing power of the gospel. Now I noticed a word here uh, in the original, the, the word hyperbole in the Greek. It's the word that we get our English word hyperbole from. Hooverbole. But hooverbole carries a slightly different connotation than, than uh, hyperbole. The connotation here that the Greek word carries is the idea of surpassing to a point that it cannot be measured. So you think about it at the grocery store back in the day, I don't, I don't know if they have them anymore, but the big old scale with the big needle, they're probably digital now, right? You get the big old scale with a big needle. Try putting an elephant on that scale. What's going to happen to the needle? Well, it's just going to, like that, and it's going to max out. You're not going to be able to measure the weight of the elephant. That's the idea here with this word, hooverbole. It cannot be measured. Cannot be measured. And that is the surpassing power of God. So in other words, the surpassing power that is put on display in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming. His, his defeat of sin and death and Satan is so overwhelming that it cannot be measured. It cannot be indexed. It cannot be quantified. That's what we see here. But, again, so this is, we're getting into the, the uh, paradoxical nature of the Christian life. That power was put on display in the context of weakness. It was put on display in the context of weakness in the apparent defeat of the Son of God. Just consider that. It was put on display through the weakness of a crucified Savior. So no death, no resurrection. No weakness, no power. Paul says later on in 2 Corinthians uh, 13, 4, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. And so this pattern that you see in the gospel is something that increasingly characterizes the life of the believer. It's the paradoxical nature of the death and resurrection of our Savior. So God has chosen to put on display to the watching world this same seemingly contradictory dynamic in the lives of his people, particularly here in the Apostle Paul and his ministry partners. But this applies to all believers. This applies to all believers. God has put his power on display in, he's put it into weak, fragile pots. And that's us. So you guys remember then, the, I read verse 8 without the negation. Notice now, let's look at verses 8 to 11. Paul says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, 
but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So it's as if God, if you could picture a, a, a clay jar, a vessel that has been shattered. God takes the, the, the pieces of that shattered jar and he puts them back together in such a way that you can still see the fractures in the jar, but somehow it is held together. More than that, it's as if God has taken a bright white lamp and he's put it inside that vessel so that the light of the lamp shines through the fractures of the jar in such a way that it radiates out and you can see the fractures of the jar, but yet the, fracture, the, the jar still stays together. You, you look at it, it doesn't make sense, but that's what it is. That's what it is. It's being held together and put on display by the power of God. So did you know then, brother, brother or sister, this is part of your Christian witness to the watching world. Again, this is one of the uncomfortable parts, perhaps, about being a Christian. You wonder why God is allowing that affliction in your life. That thorn in the flesh. That trial that just seems so untimely. That chronic health issue. That difficult marriage. That unresolved issue that just will not go away. Even that hostility in the face of your Christian love and witness. Well, brothers and sisters, we need to understand here, this is part of God's good design. It's part of God's good design for your life. God is displaying his power through your weakness. We're going to circle back around to that in a bit. It's an important point. I'm just going to look at verse 12 really quickly. Sort of this strange verse. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What is Paul getting at here? Well, I think Paul is mildly chiding the Corinthians here. The Corinthians, the, the Corinthian culture was very much sort of the prosperity gospel culture of our day. They, they didn't like suffering. They didn't like weakness. They wanted health, wealth, and prosperity. And they're looking at this bedraggled old apostle. And he's reminding them, well, listen, the life that you now enjoy, the life that you enjoy is because of my struggles, my afflictions, my metaphorical death, as it were, to bring the gospel to you. That's what he's saying here. That's what I think he's saying. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So in other words, it is a mark of Christian maturity and love to endure affliction and persecution, to bring the gospel to a people who have not heard it and who maybe don't want to hear it and sh who show indifference or worse, but you continue to bring the message through the sufferings. And of course, this is exactly what Christ endured when he went to the cross. But Paul does not lose heart. Following the footsteps of his Savior, 
beholding God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, he pushes on. And this is what we're called to as well. As we behold Christ, you push on. You endure. There's more than that, though, that we can see here, verses 13 to 15. It's this reality that caused Paul to continue to speak. After all of Paul's sufferings, you would think that he'd be ready just to shut up, right? He'd be ready to zip his lips shut and throw away the key, as it were. You'd think that he would be done. Well, not so. Look at 13 to 15. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Well, what do we see here? Paul quoting uh, from Psalm 116, I believed and so I spoke. What, what he's establishing here is his continued perseverance cannot be conjured up by mere human effort. He's, he's establishing that he believes, and so he is compelled to speak. In other words, his faith is fueling his speech. His faith is fueling his speech. He knew that Jesus is alive. He, he knows that Jesus is coming back. He knows that lives hang in the balance. More than that, you can see here in these verses, he knew that after physical death, he and the Corinthians would be brought into the Lord's presence. He's, he's being driven by this reality. So it was, faith, it was his faith fueling his speech. There's another aspect here, verse 15. As his faith grew, he began to see that through gospel proclamation, there is an there is an unstoppable increase of thanksgiving to the glory of God. This is what he sees here. So think about it like this. Paul came to recognize that that gospel proclamation was the best investment he could ever invest in. This is the investment that uh, continues in exponential growth. It just continues to snowball, even into eternity. This is the investment that moth and rust does not destroy. And so he was compelled to continue preaching so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And now we get to our, our second bookend. In light of all of that, he says this. Verse 16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Well, this brings me to my third point, and that is a vision of God surpassing power sharpened through affliction. Again, this rubs us the wrong way in our flesh. A vision of God's surpassing power sharpened through affliction. So if God's surpassing power is displayed through human weakness, a vision of God's surpassing power for the believer is sharpened 
through affliction. Through affliction. This, again, is the paradoxical nature of the crucified Christian life. So let's just think about this for a moment. It makes sense that as a person ages, they lose heart. Right? If you guys have ever visited an old folks' home, visited folks that don't know the Lord, there's, there's lots of losing heart going on there. Let's just try to, I'm going to try to illustrate this with a little bit of a visual. If you picture a graph, you got two lines. One line is physical health, okay? The other line is having heart. So we're up here. As the health goes down, the having heart goes down. That's the natural thing that happens in this fallen world. Now what Paul is saying is, for the believer, as your health, as you, as you age, goes down, the having heart just continues on steady like that. And if anything, I think it actually starts to go up. Because it's through the affliction that, that your vision of the glory of God and, and your expectation of the new heavens and the new earth is sharpened. So it's the same thing, different aspect. Or, or sorry, the same thing, different effect. Same thing, different effect. The same aging process that leads to despair and death for one leads to an eager anticipation of eternal glory with the triune God for the other. And it all comes down to what you're looking at. What are you looking at? It's interesting to note that the Greek word we saw earlier, hyperbole, it's used here again in verse 17. So remember in verse 7, it's translated as surpassing. In surpassing power here, it's translated beyond all comparison. That phrase, beyond all comparison. So remember for verse 7, we looked at the idea of the grocery scale, right? The needle that can't weigh the elephant. You can't compare. Well, the idea here is a little bit different. The emphasis is, is on the, the attempt to con contrast two things. The attempt to contrast two things. So let me illustrate. It's like trying to compare the weight of a gold brick to a feather. Except for the problem with that illustration is you can actually compare the weight of the two. You can quantify the weight. What Paul is saying is you cannot compare. You cannot compare the weight of eternal glory that awaits us as opposed to the light momentary afflictions that we endure right now. Now it's important to recognize Paul is not wanting to un He's, he's not wanting to speak lightly or belittle the afflictions that he is experiencing or the, the afflictions of the believers. That's not what he's getting at here. What he's getting at is it is beyond comparison. There's no way to compare. I remember Randy Elkhorn once, um, he was speaking about eternity, speaking about heaven, and he was trying to illustrate to believers what an eternity, well, to unbelievers as well, what an eternity will be like. So the way he did it is he, if you picture a pencil and a piece of paper. Your life on this earth is as if you take that pencil and you put a dot on the piece of paper. And you can't move that pencil, right? Life is a vapor. Life is a mist. You are here today, gone tomorrow. Now eternal life is as if you take that same pencil and put it on that piece of paper and you start dragging it and you keep on dragging it. You drag it across Canada and you come back around to your original spot 
and then you keep going. And then you go again and again and again. So that, that sort of illustrates something of eternal life to us. I would say in a quantitative sense. What does that big fancy word mean? The quantity, the, 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 the duration, right? But there's more to it than that here. Paul is, Paul is addressing, I believe, the qualitative aspect as well. That is the quality of the eternal glory. So the quantitative, the duration, and the quality of eternal glory is in view. I think uh, some verses from 1 Corinthians 15 are helpful, the resurrection chapter. Paul says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. So you can see, I think that fills in for us a little bit, the eternal weight of glory that awaits the believer, that even our endurance of our afflictions is preparing for us. So in other words, it's as, it's, it's as we get our eyes onto the unseen realm. It sounds contradictory, right? How do you look at something you can't see? Well, it's by the eyes of faith. We walk by faith. You're looking to the glory of Christ. And it is with eyes of faith that we behold the risen Savior that causes us to endure even in our afflictions. And that vision is sharpened through the affliction. I'm going to try to wind things up now. I came across this poem the other day. If you're reading uh, Piper's Providence, I recommended it at the uh, Bucket Theology a week ago, week and a half ago. It's got this poem in it, excellent poem. I thought it was quite fitting. It's called The Thorn by Martha Snell Nicholson. So she said, I stood a mendicant. That's, that means a beggar. I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift, which I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift, which thou hast given me. He said, my child, I give good gifts, and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and thought at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. So brothers and sisters, have you been losing heart? Well, this is what the text is telling us. Because we see the surpassing glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we do not lose heart. So if you're a believer here today, look to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ, the risen, the, the crucified and risen Lord. The crucified and risen Lord. And you will be caused to persevere in the faith. I just wanted to say a word to my brother, my, my brothers, uh, pastor elders here. You and I have the privilege, the, the incredible privilege of being ministers of the new covenant. Ministers of the new covenant. 
what a gift that is. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So for all of us then, I was going to give an exhortation at Pastor Josh, but I forgot he's in Cochrane. Even as Pastor Josh is going to be bittersweet to see him go, this would be an exhortation to him and to everyone else, our, our beloved senior pastor, Clint Humphrey. Continue to press on in this new covenant ministry. Just think about the gift of the new covenant ministry. The Spirit gives life. If you're not a Christian here today, you, I, I mean, a question that I had prepping the sermon is, how have you not lost heart already? How have you not lost heart already? So you're exhorted. L- listen, life gets harder. Life gets harder. I know for you young folks here, you think you're invincible right now. It doesn't last forever. Enjoy it while it lasts, right? But life gets harder, and to put it bluntly, then you die. Then you die, and you have to face your creator on the day of judgment. So look to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. And you will find in him, as you look to him, your vision of his glory will only get better as you wait, as you await an eternity with him. Well, brothers and sisters, as we look with the eyes of faith to Christ together, we can say then with the Apostle Paul, therefore, we do not lose heart. Let's pray. (sighs) Heavenly Father, what a word this is. Um, What an incredible thing to be able to see the risen Christ in his glory, even with the eyes of faith. Father, we long to see him face to face. We know that day is coming. But Father, in the meantime, even just thinking of different brothers and sisters here who are enduring enduring great trial, great affliction, great uh, heartache even, oh Father, that you would encourage them, spur them on this day to continue to look to the risen Savior who has conquered death and sin and the grave. Help us all, Lord, to look to him with the eyes of faith. I pray for any who do not know Jesus in a saving way. Oh, Father, that you would speak light and life into their lives. Help us now as we sing your praises. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's rise and sing together. Well, as a word of benediction, just consider these words from Romans 8. Paul says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now just consider this, looking to the unseen realm. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We'll go in peace with that word in mind. You're dismissed.